Today we continue our brief survey of the book of Revelation during the 50 days of Easter. Jesus has established the kingdom of God and initiated a new creation, and so we're turning to the book of Revelation to explore what that really means. How does the kingdom come? What does that look like? And what should we be doing in the meantime? What's our responsibility in the meantime? Um, So let's review where things stand at this point. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, is on the throne in heaven. Jesus has been deemed worthy to open the seven seals that unleash the kingdom of God upon the earth. So one by one, Jesus begins to open those seals. And with the opening of each seal, events begin to unfold upon the earth. And these, these events arguably correspond to the age of the apostles, to the early years of the church. Remember, chapter 5 depicted the ascension of Jesus from the perspective of heaven. And the opening of the seven seals follows immediately after that. Now, our passage today pertains to seal number 6. As seal number 6 is opened, the universe begins to symbolically collapse. But this is not the end of the physical universe. It's the end of an age. The old world is passing away so that the new world can come. And this is symbolically depicted as the collapse of the universe. So the historical situation of the book of Revelation is like the collision of two weather systems. Two opposing weather systems. When a warm weather system and a cool weather system collide, storms are the result. So here in the book of Revelation, the weather system of the old world is colliding with the weather system of the new world. And John is warning the church to expect foul weather. Jesus has risen from the grave, which has initiated a whole new world of righteousness and life. And that world is colliding with the old world of sin and death. So we're picking up in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So here we see that the symbolic collapse of the universe, which began back in chapter 6, is actually being delayed. We see four angels holding back the end of the age. Why? Verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So the end of the old world is delayed until a specific number of Jews can be sealed. Ultimately, the number 144,000 is symbolic, but we do learn something important from the number. This is obviously a census, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the Bible, the purpose of a census is to determine the military might of a nation. And so this is an army. 144,000 is a symbolically complete Israelite army. The old world is delayed then until a mighty Israelite army can be sealed. But what for? What are they sealed for? To answer that, we need to look back to seal number five, chapter six, verse nine. 
When Jesus opened the fifth seal, that's seal number five, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So John sees a large group of people who have been martyred for their witness and they are crying out to God for vindication. I believe these are the voices of the saints and prophets of the old world. Every martyred saint from Abel to to John the Baptist These saints have been waiting in what's called Abraham's bosom, which is basically a holding place for faithful old covenant saints. Because there has been no human being deemed worthy of taking the throne in heaven, these saints have been temporarily denied full access to heaven. They have been waiting patiently for the Messiah to come, to avenge their deaths, to take the throne, which is their ticket up into the throne room in heaven. But now the Messiah has come, right? Chapter five. And he has taken the throne and he has opened that doorway into heaven. And so these saints begin crying out. They see that Jesus has ascended into heaven. They see that Jesus has proven himself worthy to take the throne, worthy to open the scroll. And they rightly discern that the time of their vindication has come. The time has come for them to ascend into heaven Two. However, according to verse 11, they are told to wait a little longer. So it's almost time, but not quite yet. Why? Well, because more martyrs need to be made. More martyr blood needs to be spilled. The Old Covenant saints are told to wait until, chapter 6, verse 11, the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's a bit unsettling, right? The logic of that is not obvious to us. It reminds me of Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings because he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. How could Paul even dare to imply that the suffering of Jesus was in any way incomplete? It sounds blasphemous. What could Paul's suffering possibly add to the sufferings of Christ? And so we should make it abundantly clear that we are saved and we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus alone. There is nothing for us to contribute to his atoning work. But the blood of the martyrs is nevertheless part of how God accomplishes his purposes in the earth. To understand this, to to understand what's going on, um, let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus speaking to the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. All right? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you, May come all the righteous blood shed on earth. On you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In short, Jesus tells the Jewish authorities that the righteous, that, that righteous blood is going to be poured out upon the earth as an act of divine judgment. And truly, he says to them, it's going to happen within one generation. Now, back to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 16, we see seven angels pouring seven bowls of wrath upon the earth. And these seven bowls are filled with the blood of the martyrs. The full number of martyrs has been made complete in chapter 16. The bowls are filled to the brim, and the end of the old world has come. Just as Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, the blood of the righteous is poured out upon them and within one generation of his sacrifice. So, back to the 144,000 saints. The Lion of Judah is mustering a mighty army, a symbolically complete Israelite army, and they are preparing to conquer their enemies. How? Well, the same way a lamb would. The same way the lamb did. These faithful saints are an army of martyrs marching toward their own deaths in solidarity with their king. The 144,000 Jews are sealed for martyrdom. And we see their martyrdom happen in Revelation chapters 14, 15, and 16. In chapter 14, the 144,000 martyrs are harvested by Jesus. The full number is made complete. And their blood is added to the blood of the old covenant martyrs who had been told to wait a little while longer. And together, all of that martyr blood fills the seven bowls. Then in chapter 15, John sees these same martyrs standing and, standing and singing in heaven. They are vindicated at last and they are permitted to ascend into heaven. And then in chapter 16, those seven bowls of wrath are poured out upon the earth. The blood of the martyrs is poured out upon the earth. This is precisely what Jesus said would happen back in Matthew 23. Remember, as John wrote the book of Revelation, the church was living through the collision of those two weather systems. The new world had begun in Christ, but the old world had not yet fully passed away. And that's why the Jewish followers of Jesus continued worshiping in the temple for a time. 
the overlap of the old world and the new world was, was like a Venn diagram, right? Two overlapping circles. And the apostles are living in that middle section. But with the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in AD 70, the old world finally came to an end. So, when does Revelation chapter 16 happen? In the course of human events, when does it happen? When are those seven bowls poured out? I believe in those years leading up to AD 70. One generation after the sacrifice of Christ, just like he said. The bowls of martyr blood are filled to the brim and divine judgment begins to fall upon Jerusalem, just like Jesus said it would. So, we see that God accounts for every drop of righteous blood. And eventually, he pours it out in wrath. But ultimately, this is a good thing. It is good when God pours out the blood of the martyrs. God is bringing the old world to an end so that a new and better world can come into being. And here in chapter 7, we're given a glimpse into that new and better world. John sees a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands. And in harmony with the heavenly host, they are singing out with a loud voice. We're told in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The two weather systems of the old world and the new world have collided, which has resulted in storms. But from the perspective of heaven, these storms are revealed to be April showers. They bring new life. Like everything else in the kingdom of God, these storms look like death and they actually bring new life. Jesus is martyred, and the new world is born. And then his followers are martyred, and that new world comes of age. This is a, this is a distinctly Christian form of martyrdom, by the way, um, because it follows in the footsteps of a humble and silent lamb. And that is precisely what makes it so powerful. And so it's worth distinguishing this from, say, Islamic martyrdom, which is, I believe, a demonic distortion of Christian martyrdom. According to the Bible, a martyr is not someone who dies as an act of judgment. A martyr is someone who dies as an act of witness. The timing of our vindication belongs to God alone, and our ultimate goal is the salvation and the discipleship of the nations not the destruction of those who disagree with us. We see this distinction clearly in chapter 7. John's vision of this diverse international multitude follows after, what? The sealing of the martyrs. And it's a picture of what distinctly Christian martyrdom produces. The martyrdom of the saints produces the worship of the nation. The martyrdom of the saints fulfills the Great Commission and all nations are discipled. All nations are worshiping at the throne of the Lamb. 
I want to invite you to put yourself in the shoes of John's first century audience as you're reading chapter 7. Chapter 7 is daunting. Chapter 7 is terrifying. These martyrs were real people. Married people, single people, people with homes, people with kids, people with jobs, people with problems, people with hobbies, people with hopes for the future. Chapter 7 must have been terrifying. At the same time, chapter 7 was intended as a great encouragement. John is giving the martyrs a vision of the entire world gathered in worship of the Lamb. And the entire world is holding palm branches in their hands. Just as they waved palm branches for Jesus as he marched toward his death, so the nations are waving palm branches as the martyrs march toward their deaths. Chapter 7 is thus a triumphal procession. The Gentile nations are cheering on the 144,000 Jews as they march toward martyrdom because their blood is going to bring judgment to the old world and take the gospel global. There is no greater testimony to the triumph of Christ over death than to see his followers fearless in the face of their own deaths. There's no greater testimony But not only is it a a powerful form of evangelism, but even today, every drop of martyr blood is accounted for by God. And eventually, that blood is poured out to give birth to a new and better world. And to illustrate this, I want to close uh, with a bit of church history. Um, All Saints Day is the day on the Christian calendar when we celebrate and remember all the saints throughout history. Um, But originally, the holiday was created to remember the martyrs specifically. In 609 AD, Pope Boniface IV converted the Pantheon in Rome into a Christian church, and and he simultaneously established All Saints Day. Now, the Pantheon in Rome was originally built as a pagan temple, dedicated to all the Roman gods. That's that's what the word means. Pantheon means pan-all-theon gods. But centuries later, the Roman Empire officially declared itself Christian. Having spent several centuries spilling the blood of the martyrs, the Roman Empire officially recognized the lordship of the Lamb. And so the Pantheon was eventually donated to the church and it was rededicated by Pope Boniface in honor of all the Christian martyrs. In honor of all the Christian martyrs. Think about that. The pagan temple originally dedicated to all the Roman gods is converted into a Christian church and rededicated to all the Christian martyrs. From all the gods to all the martyrs. And so the Pantheon stands even today as a witness to the power of martyr blood. The mighty Roman Empire was no match for the army of Christian martyrs. And so the rebellious nations of this world may spill the blood of the righteous, but they are only filling the bowls of divine judgment. 
And eventually the saints will inherit the very land that devours them. You see, the book of Revelation reveals the method by which the church achieves victory. Bearing witness. That's what the word martyr means, witness. And if necessary, bearing witness unto death. Martyrdom appears to us wasteful. From an, from an earthly perspective, it's, it's tragic and horrific. And we are right to mourn when it happens. But hear the words of Paul from Romans chapter 8. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is how the kingdom of God works. The martyred king can say with authority to his army of martyrs, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive unto the ages of ages. Or in other words, fear not. I've been there. I'm living proof that martyrdom is not the end. Martyrdom is just the beginning. And your righteous blood is giving life, new life to the world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you, you are good to account for the shed blood of your saints. You see us. You see every one of us and you promise to vindicate us and we thank you for that. Jesus, martyred king, lamb of God, give us faith to follow in your footsteps. Give us faith to bear witness and if necessary unto death. Holy Spirit, give us boldness. Prepare us to suffer faithfully and equip us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And we ask that you would draw near to our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution and death today. Give them faith to persevere. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.